This morning we move officially into the second half of the sermon series that we've been working our way through these last few weeks called Kingdom Come. For three weeks now we've been um, looking at some examples from the 30 plus times in the book of Luke where Luke describes um, either crowds or perhaps individuals who were gathering around Jesus, pursuing Jesus, pressing into Jesus in the hopes that they could see him, hear him, touch him, have some sort of contact with him. And this morning's passage comes from chapter 9. And this chapter is significant in the, the overall structure of the book of Luke. Um, it's, it's here in this chapter where we find a major shift in the overall trajectory of the gospel as a whole. Now, we'll be in verse 37 here in a moment, but if we were to take time to analyze verses 1 through 36, what we, what we would find there is something of a Um, well, like a summary, we'll put it that way. It's like a summary of some of the main themes that Luke has been emphasizing. And in this summary, uh, you find six different sections. And if we look at these sections and and look at how they summarize uh, where Luke has been going up to this point, we would see that it would kind of boil down under two main ideas. The first idea is, who are the people of God? Who are the people of God? Well, if you look in that verses 1 through 36, you'll see that the people of God are represented by the 12 disciples, by the 5,000 that were fed, and by those who were called to follow the way of the cross. That would be sections 1, 3, and 5. Remember, there's six sections, 1, 3, and 5. The second point that kind of arises out of the summary is, well, who is Jesus? So we, we, we have identified who the people of God are. Well, who is Jesus? And this is signified in the question that Herod asks, in Jesus' own question of his disciples, and then, of course, the Mount of Transfiguration in sections 2, 4, and 6. And so it's this beautiful summary that Luke provides for us at this pivot point in the structure of his gospel. Jesus' ministry in Galilee has concluded, and he pivots, and he begins his ministry in Jerusalem. We find here in verse 37 now, on the the other end of this pivot, the very first account that Luke shares with us. That's where we're going to be spending our time here this morning. So if you you grabbed one of the guest Bibles, we're on page 832, Luke chapter 9, reading verses 37 down through verse 43. Luke says, the next day, this is after, after the Mount of Transfiguration, the very next day, after they had come down from the mountain, a large crowd met Jesus. A man in the crowd called out to him, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, my only child. An evil spirit keeps seizing him and making him scream. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It batters him and hardly ever leaves him alone. I begged your disciples to cast out the spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said, You faithless and corrupt people. How long must I be with you and put up with you? Then he said to the man, bring your son here. As the boy came forward, the demon knocked him to the ground and threw him into a violent convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit and healed the boy. Then he gave him back to his father. All gripped the people as they saw this majestic display of God's power. The first thing that leapt off this page to me as I uh, settled in to begin my sermon prep in earnest this week 
is, is something that maybe it's jumped off the page to you, I don't know, but it certainly did to me. And it's, it's what Jesus does not get exasperated with in the story. He's clearly exasperated, but he's not exasperated with the things that we get exasperated with. Notice that his rebuke in verse 41 is not in response to the father's need. Please note that in your mind and in your heart. Jesus' reaction is not to the father's need. Indeed, throughout the gospels repeatedly, we we are told that, that Jesus has compassion for the needy. Take, for example, this verse in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. You know it well. When he saw the crowds, what does it say he did? He had compassion on them. Compassion, we're told elsewhere explicitly in the Gospels. Compassion for the hungry multitudes. Compassion for a leper in Galilee. Compassion for uh, the, the, the two blind men at Jericho, the widow at Nain. On and on and on, we're told that Jesus has compassion for real people who are caught in the throes of real life in a broken world. Jesus is neither unacquainted with nor unmoved by human need. Now, I have to confess, um, <laughs> I, I, I don't get this right all the time. When I compare sort of my own heart, my own life, especially as a father, to Jesus's posture and attitude towards need, and I see just how much I do not measure up. It's not uncommon for, for me in my life late in the evening after I have had, you know, a long, a long tiresome day. And I'm just so eager to kick back and put my feet up and, you know, decompress and just, you know, rest for just a little while before going to bed and starting the cycle over when suddenly a beautiful blonde-haired person who's supposed to be in bed asleep just materializes out of the ether and needs something. All the AMs, Phil. Need, need, need. And I would love to confess to you that my heart is only ever compassionate and understanding and patient for my beloved children, but then I'm reminded, thanks to the Revelation song, Revelation 21.8 says that the fate of all liars is the second death in a fiery lake of burning sulfur. So I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't always have compassion and patience and love and, and understanding for the constant need that is presented to me in my life. In fact, I often get irritated by it. And that's not something I say with great pride. I know I'm sort of presenting it to you sort of tongue-in-cheek, but it's, it's actually a, a source of shame to a degree that I, that I don't have more patience or more understanding or compassion in my heart, even for my own children. But God never gets irritated with it. He's the perfect father. He's never irritated with us presenting to him our needs. In fact, as Jesus demonstrates for us, by the way, the son of the father, the only begotten of the father, eternally begotten of the father, perfect God and perfect man, Jesus reveals to us what God is like. And according to Jesus, it seems the greater the need, the greater the compassion. I find that fascinating and comforting this morning. But do you know what else Jesus does not get 
exasperated with in this passage that we would, I guess, expect him to get exasperated with? It's not as explicit here, I guess, in this story as it has been in some of the previous ones where we've been the last few weeks. And I really want to be careful here because I don't want you to mishear what I'm about to say. But it's not sin. Now, those of you who are regulars here who have, you know, received and been exposed to the the preaching, the ministry of the word here of this church for any amount of time, um, you know full well that we at this church are not soft on sin. In fact, we address it with an almost painful regularity. I mean, just a moment ago, I, I mentioned what Revelation says about liars. I hope that you know, there wasn't a joke. <laughs> it's quite serious. I, I hope your life isn't marked by, by lying because the Bible says grave things about that. And we need to hear that and be, we need our lives corrected by that. We need that to form the boundary lines of how we live and conduct ourselves. And, and we will always, from this pulpit, call people to a biblical seriousness regarding sin. Because God never God himself never trivializes it. God never just dismisses it or pretends it's not a big deal. Don't think for a second that God is ever unconcerned with sin in your life or in anyone else's life. But the tenderness and the compassion and the welcome shown by Jesus for the sinner is astonishing. We kicked off our series just a few weeks ago with a story about that certain immoral woman. You remember her? The one who came and presented herself to Jesus and how how did he respond to her? Well, he he extended to her the, the true welcome. Right? We were comparing her welcome of Jesus to, you know, the 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 Pharisee who was who was you know, welcoming Jesus to his house and compared and contrast and made observations. But our, our, our greater observation was, oh, but look at his welcome of them. It's, it's mind-boggling that God is so open and welcoming to the sinner. And she didn't have to sort of resolve all of her problems and get her life all straightened up and cut out all the nonsense before she could come to Jesus. He took her as she was. Yes, he acknowledges her many sins. It's all in the text. He acknowledges her many sins, just like he did with, with the, remember, the Samaritan woman at the well. He, he acknowledges and, and draws her attention to how her life does not align with, with the values of the kingdom and how she can't just pretend as if that's not a problem, as if that's not some sort of barrier between herself and God. Absolutely, it's, it's a problem, and Jesus will acknowledge it, but he welcomes her to himself nonetheless. His command to go and sin no more is only ever the consequence of his grace that has freely been offered and never its ground. In other words, he doesn't give his grace because someone sins no more. Going and sinning no more is the result of the free extension of his grace. What is the ground of his grace? Well, it's his own loving nature. It's the ground of God's grace is not in us or in our response. It's not in our performance. It's not in our duty. It's not anything that you and I do to somehow sort of muster up his grace. His grace pre-exists our awareness of it and our response to it. 
and it, it, it's ground, it's originating source, it's wellspring spring, is his own nature of holy love. And his grace does not await us having it all together. It awaits our repentance and our faith. And I believe that's right there in the passage. I think we're finally starting to get, you know, right down to brass tacks to to what is the thing that produces something like exasperation in the heart of Jesus. What has him all been out of shape here? Well, it's when he finds faith lacking. Particularly, in those who have already experienced and have been exposed to him and his grace. That's the irritation. That's the rub for Jesus. His accusation is not against inability. It's not against inadequacy. It is not against limitation. It is against unbelief. It's an echo of the prophetic grievances of God against unbelieving Israel that you can find throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. (laughs) You stiff-necked people, after all you have seen, after all I have done, after all you have experienced, as you're, as you're living in the, the land of blessing, your hearts are repeatedly turned away from me in unbelief. Now think for a second with me here. When we read this a moment ago, and we got to, what was it, verse 41, when, when Jesus you know, makes his accusation, who did you in your mind, as, as you're sort of, I hope you're sort of picturing what's going on here in this scenario, who in your mind did you picture Jesus directing that to? Who, who I hear, I hear out there. So I'm assuming those are the, the S sound of the word disciples. I'm guessing that's what I'm hearing. I haven't heard any concrete answers. I think everyone's kind of, okay, so we have a, a concrete, we have disciples for 100 over here. Uh, did anybody, and it's okay if you thought this, um, did anybody sort of think this is a, just a sort of a generic, you know, accusation against the believing people? Because, you know, Jesus does, you know, he weeps over Jerusalem, right? He, there is this sense that his people as a whole, now I know they're represented by the, the religious leaders of, of the day in their rejection of him. Um, there is this sense that the people or his people reject him ultimately. In fact, the, the, the very crowds who have been following him around and you know, seeking him out and sort of hounding his steps, well, there comes a point in this gospel where they're nowhere to be found. In fact, the closer he gets to the cross, the harder it is to find anybody who wants to stand alongside of him. So absolutely, there is this, this point where even the crowds themselves will, will pivot and turn away from him rather than toward him. But I think right here in chapter 9, I think that the accusation, the, the irritation that we detect, even the, the exasperation in the heart of Jesus is directed at his disciples. I think it's at his disciples. That, that pivot that the crowds make later in the gospel, well, I think we begin to see it right here in chapter 9. Now, we didn't take time to read the whole chapter. And if we had, it would have been a little more clear. Because chapter 9 is sort of a, a tale of, of two cities, or 
find some other binary, a Jekyll and a Hyde, two, a yin and a yang, whatever you want to say. So two extreme opposites is what we see right here in the lives of the disciples in this one chapter. You know, just a few verses prior, beginning back in, in verse 1 and following, you know, you find the, the disciples, what are they doing? They're preaching the good news. They're healing every sickness and disease. They're feeding the multitudes. They're carrying out the, the business of the kingdom. They're making grand confessions. Is there a grander confession in all of the New Testament than what comes out of the mouth of Peter? You are the Christ son of the living God. Is there, is there a, a beautiful, more beautiful picture of, of what spirit-filled kingdom workers look like than those snapshots we get in the first 30 or so verses of this chapter? But then something changes. And, and if you're reading quickly, you can miss it. You can be like, well, it's kind of like, you know, when you're, you're on the highway. Has anyone ever had highway hypnosis before? Do you know what I'm talking about? You're on the long drive, the impossibly long drive that will never end. And if you're like me, you know, like 10 minutes down the road, you're the only one that's even awake in the car. And you're all, you're practically alone, you know, and, and you're bored. And the road is just endless miles of, you know, the, the, the dotted, the striped line going past you. And before you know it, you come to and you're like, where am I? I was supposed to be going there and I'm here and whatever. And just like, it's like the time didn't exist. That can happen in chapter nine of Luke if you're not careful. You're reading through, you're doing, you're doing your Bible study, you're being a good Christian, you're having your quiet time. Oh, the disciples are great in and, and this confession. And, just, and somebody's like, what? Suddenly, very suddenly, they're no longer able to heal. You, you saw it right there in our passage there in verse 40. And just a few verses prior, where before they had been proclaiming the good news, their mouths are this beautiful like instrument to, to carry out the work of God. Now they're, they're blundering, blubbering nonsense. Peter up on the mountaintop. It says, I love how, um, how the NLT renders that. I believe it's in verse, uh, verse 30. Let's see, what page am I on here? Verse 30. No, I'm sorry, go down a little bit. Um, verse 33. So Jesus has transfigured. He's there with the spirit of Moses and Elijah, and they're starting to leave. And Peter, it says, not even knowing what he was saying, blurted out, blah, 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 word, you know, word vomit that comes out of his mouth. What a, what a distinct shift from back in the beginning of, in verse 6, preaching the good news. Preaching good news, healing the sick, blurting out word, word vomit, unable to heal the sick. Verse 45, they're confused and they're afraid. There's no boldness anymore. In, in verse 46, they're arguing over who's the greatest. In verse 49, they're forming cliques. If you ever want to look for the absence of the Spirit of God among the people of God, just find a group of people where they're clicky. Where the, the, the true welcome of Jesus for the other is gone. God save us from ever getting clicky. And if you find clickiness forming in your heart, you need to repent of that and, and rebuke it. And by the way, in September, we're having, what, we're having a name amnesty Sunday. Do you remember that? We did it years ago. For those of you that were here, 
what happens in a church this size. Well, we're not, he, we're not a mega church, but we're not a little, you know, 20-person country church either. It's big, we're just big enough that typically the folks over here don't entirely know the folks over here. You recognize the face, you pass each other around the donuts, you said hi a hundred times, but man, what is his name? But you're too embarrassed to ask. And so you just don't. And next thing you know, you've, you've gone years here and you're just acquaintances that don't even know each other's names. Name Amnesty Sunday is meant to help you with that. Everyone puts a name tag on and you have the freedom to not know someone's name. No one's gonna hold it against you if you don't. You get to learn each other's names and get out of the comfort of your little clique. That's happening in the hearts of the disciples. They're not a part of us. Those other guys, they were casting out demons in your name, but they're not of us. Do you see the, how warped the mentality is? That other people who are carrying out the work of the kingdom are to be rebuked just because they're not part of the inside group? Who, by the way, is powerless to do what they're doing? It's so twisted and warped and sinful. And as if it couldn't get any worse, what's the next thing they want to do in verse 54? Let's call down fire and destroy these unbelievers. Isn't it amazing the difference in the second half of Luke 9 in the lives of the disciples than in the first half? And the question that I want to know is, what changed? What changed? And honestly, I think the answer is, well, I don't think the disciples changed. Now that sounds counterintuitive because I just said how different they were. Honestly, I don't think the actual contents of their heart actually changed. So what changed? Well, for me, I think it's the revelation of who Jesus is as it's really emerging in this chapter. Well, it has the effect of making what's in their hearts actually more clear. You see, it's, it's getting beneath the surface. It's exposing what truly lies inside. Verse 20, Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, in his great confession, You are the Messiah sent from God. I get the gold star because I said the right answer today. What's the next verse say, though? Verse 21, what does Jesus have to say about it? Well, the Son of Man will have to suffer many terrible things. In fact, he'll be rejected. Yeah, the same one that all the crowds are clamoring to be with. He will be rejected. He will be killed and raised back to life. In other words, Peter, that's what it means for me to be who you say that I am. And next thing you know, the wheels come off. Peter's confession in verse 20 of Jesus' identity is not wrong. His understanding of what it means is wrong. He's got the right words, but he's got all the wrong definitions. He says the right thing, but he doesn't understand it. And his perception, his idea of what Jesus is supposed to be could not be more different than what Jesus actually is. 
And this rapid progression of revelation concerning Jesus in this chapter essentially peels back the layers of their hearts. And it exposes what's really there, just how far they actually have to go in their understanding and in their maturity. And apparently in this passage, in their faith. The more Jesus reveals of himself, the more he exposes of them. And his exasperation here is not some sort of you know, sinful human exasperation, the type that you and I feel when our you know, kids ask for one too many things. No, it's, it's of God's holy, divine response to unbelief in the hearts of those that belong to him. I want you to hear that this morning, church. I want you to hear that. Because so often, you and I picture God as being so irritated with us in our limitations or in our struggles, in our need. But do you know what actually triggers God is a lack of faith in those who should know better. Their willful blindness to the reality of who he has revealed himself to be. No group of people in the history of the world up to this point had been privy to the heights of revelation, of the insight into the nature and character and purposes of Almighty God like these guys were. They stood on a literal mountaintop that was not coincidental, by the way. There's, there's, it's theological. Everything about this is screaming something to us. They stood on an actual literal mountaintop and they saw Jesus transform right before their very eyes. They saw, it says in verse 32, literally, quote, they saw Jesus' glory. And they heard a voice. How many of you have ever actually heard an audible, you don't raise your hands. I don't want to put anybody on the spot. How many people, um, maybe count on one hand probably. And it's probably the kooky ones in here. You hear voices all the time. I'm just kidding. It's not you. But how many of you have actually heard the voice of God speak to your, he- to your ears, not your heart, your ears could hear it from a cloud? I mean, who experiences that? These guys had seen this. They heard it. And what did the voice of God say? You remember? This is my beloved son, but then what? Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to what he says. Watch what he does. You need to abandon your own preconceived notions. You need to lay it, you need to check at the door what you imagine him to be and listen to what he actually has to say. You want to know what the life of faith is? It's that right there. It's laying aside your ideas, your notions, your desires, your concepts of how things should be and embracing God's. Even when it sounds crazy. Even when it doesn't align with what you had always hoped and dreamed for. That's faith. Listening to Jesus. That's what God says. This is my son. I've brought you up on this mountaintop. I've exposed him for all, well, not for all the world yet, but for you to see. You can hear my voice. And what's the one thing I want you to do? Listen to him. And what's the very next thing Luke tells us? I think it's in verse 44. That Jesus says explicitly for his disciples to do. I'll give you one guess. What does he say? Listen to me. It's the next words. The father says it. The son 
echoes it. Listen to me. These guys stood on a mountaintop and they saw and heard that. And yet, instead of listening, they chose to cling to their own small view of God. They clung to their their unbelief, to their false expectations, to their sinful, human, idolatrous, idolatrous caricatures of God. And I wonder, I wonder, how often do you and I do the same? In our own lives. Instead of receiving truth of who God is, revealed in Christ, inscripturated in this book, true from cover to cover, inspired by the Spirit, who doesn't just inspire, he inspires its its composition, and he works through the church to preserve its truth, and he superintends its reading and its proclamation even now. And yet you and I are so determined to just cling to our own little ideas, our own expectations, the things we think God is and things God should do rather than listening to him. What is Jesus, what has he really come to do here? If we're being really honest about this passage, what is he, what is he doing? Now, look, we've laid the foundation for this for the last several weeks, haven't we? I, I, hope, I hope we have. That's been the goal, to lay this foundation so we can we can not just lay a foundation, but build on it and draw deeper, higher, more you know, meaningful conclusions. What have we established for the last three weeks? Well, yes, Jesus cares about the whole person. Absolutely. All that makes you a human person, he cares about it all. Jesus meets us where we are and welcomes us as we are. Absolutely. Jesus does, in fact, address our immediate needs, our felt needs. Those things are not insignificant to him. But most importantly, what's the thing he cares about the most? Right? It's not our felt needs. It's not the immediate needs. He cares about those, those deeper needs, doesn't he? We've seen it in every story we've come across so far. And it's happening right here once again. Did you notice how Luke describes the boy's problem, his condition? Did you notice that? What, what struck me is, um, it sounds like a doctor's diagnosis, doesn't it? Which makes sense because of what we know about Luke. This, here's the, the good doctor, you know, identifying the symptoms of the condition, the condition with precision. L- look there in verse 39. What does it say? There's four descriptors. It's like this. So you can see him with the, the white jacket on and the little thing on his head and the little things hanging from his neck. I'm sorry, not all the terminology. Sheila and others, you can forgive me later for whatever. You know, the, the doctor headphones that they put on. It's a stethoscope. I'm just playing. I'm not that stupid. All right. So you can just picture Luke, the doctor, sitting there on his gear. And he's like, okay, we, we have the boy was thrown down. Okay. He was seized. Um, he's, you know, he's shouting. He's foaming at the mouth. Okay. So as the doctor is, is diagnosing the symptoms, what, what clinical diagnosis just jumps out to you right now? What does that sound like? Epilepsy, doesn't it? I have a brother who has been diagnosed with epilepsy, and I think he could attest that, yeah, that sounds a lot like what his experience is. And any good doctor worth his salt then or today would arrive at that same conclusion. But what does Luke actually say is the cause of all this? Luke, Luke discerns something deeper and spiritual in, in his 
description of the story, and he attributes what's going on not to just some you know, physiological condition. No, he says this is the work of, a, of an evil spirit. This is demonic, what is going on here. Now, before I go any further, I, I feel this urgency to call time out and point out two sort of quick, you know, tangential things about this. Um, they're still important, and that's why we're calling the time out to do this. There's two things we have to make clear before we go any further, and, and it is this. First of all, um, this passage is not, don't let it become your new favorite proof text to suggest that every physical illness has some sort of demonic source behind it. Okay? Please don't do that. You can't take, you know, something that might be the case in this particular instance and then just say, well, it means it's the case in every instance. That's not, that's not, that's a fallacious conclusion. All right? So I'm not suggesting that just because that's going on here that your, you know, toe ache has some sort of named evil person, you know, person behind it that's causing it to ache. All right? So quit blaming, quit giving the devil so much credit for all the bad stuff in your life. He's, you don't get credit for it all. All right? But neither does this passage prove that with just enough faith, God will heal everything. It's not always God's will to heal, heal a person physically when we want him to. Now, I do believe God will heal everything. Some of us may just have to wait until we see him face to face to experience that, that healing. So it's not a matter of whether God will heal everything. Of course he will. The question is, when? And there's people out there that will say, he'll do it right now so long as you have enough faith. And I don't find that in the Bible, and I don't find that in my experience. A person may sincerely pray and truly have faith in God's power to heal, but if it's not his will at that time, then no healing is going to come. Think of it this way. What good father gives to their child everything asked for all the time? I mean, even fathers who genuinely love their children know that you don't always give them exactly what they want or ask for, even in good faith, even if they truly believe that you can provide it and that and they are counting on your love. There's, no, there's not even a shadow of a doubt in their heart about your heart or your goodness or your love or your power. They have total faith in you. That doesn't mean you're going to give it to them. Sometimes God permits illness, disability, hardship, to accomplish a greater purpose. Man, I, I, I was undone last night in, in my uh, you know, weekly sermon prep flow. Saturday is the day, usually, when I have a sermon, but it's like an hour long, right? So I've done all the, I've done the, the deep dive into the text, and I've, I've begun to uh, develop an, a structure, and I have all the connective tissues that makes it a, you know, there's sermon craft. There's a craft to it. It doesn't just bleh, happen. It, you wouldn't want that to happen. Some people, maybe, you know, the Holy Spirit works that way. They just show up. But if it were me, it'd be like Peter on the mountaintop, right? Just be word vomit. I need to take time for these things, these truths to, to simmer and, 
and for all the, you know, all the flavors to, to marry and come together like, a, like a, good, a good pasta sauce. I, by the way, made my first homemade spaghetti sauce the other day. And let me tell you, That thing sat on the pot for four hours, and my conclusion was it should have sat for another four, because the longer it sat, just the more robust and concentrated and, and, and oh, it's just, it was a work of art. <laughs> and it's, it, goes, it goes against what you would think, but the less time I spend on sermon prep, the longer the sermon ends up. I'm serious. Amen. Yeah, because, <laughs> Amen. And you're thinking, boy, Sean, you spent like 10 minutes on it this week because we're already 40 minutes in. I've got a whole other page of notes. So you just wait. Um, but Saturday is my trim, trim it down. You know, tighten it up. You get to the point. Cut stuff out that need to be there and, you know, zero in. And last night, I was un, it was unexpected. But I found myself thinking about this, you know, these two tangent things that are going to add time to the sermon. I apologize for that. But... I, my mind went to Johnny Erickson Tata. Um, many of you know who she is. She's a popular evangelical Christian author and speaker. In fact, our, I think our last Morning Light and Nightlight, they use one of her studies. And um, if you don't know her, she's a, a quadriplegic who at the age of 17 um, was with her sister. She just graduate, graduated from high school. They were swimming, I think, in the Chesapeake Bay. And she, mis- she, missed es- she underestimated how... Um, how deep the water was, and dove in headfirst and broke her neck and has been a quadriplegic her entire adult life. And I found myself um, listening to her testimony, and I was just undone by this woman's testimony. It's one of the most remarkable things I've ever heard. She talks about how she came to Christ at 14 and um, was just on fire for God. And then, you know, like a lot, what happens with a lot of teenagers, you know, it's, it's these wild ups and downs, right? They go to camp. And they come back on fire for God and then they come home and they're like little bratty teenagers again for another year. And then they go back to camp and they love Jesus all over again and they love the world. And then they come home and they're, you know, it's not my kids. You guys would never be like that. But your kids are probably like that. And she, no, not your kids. Some other church's kids are like that. This church's kids don't do that. So she'd gone, she'd gone to camp. She gave her heart to Jesus. She came back, became a bratty teen. And when she got, you know, a little bit older, she realized I need, God needs to do something radical in my life. And she asked for him to. God, do something radical in my life to put me back on the straight and narrow. I want to live for you. I want to. And what happens shortly thereafter? She breaks her neck. Imagine the bitterness your heart would feel as you're lying in a hospital bed knowing you'll never walk again. After praying that, praying that God would do something, in your life, where were you then, God? And people would come to her and they try to comfort her. You know, let's read Jeremiah, uh, was it 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, plans not to harm you. And she would hear that and be like, how can that be for me? How can you say, how can God say that he doesn't have plans that would harm me when I ask for him to do something radical in my life and this is what has happened? But she came to see that God's plans for a hopeful future, well, they just weren't going to include being healed and walking again. She says his plans went far deeper to what she called a precious healing of the soul. Plug that into your theology, church. 
She says suffering, she and her husband were talking about it one day, and they, they were talking about how you know, suffering is like a little splash over, over of hell. It's like hell's, hell's real, and it's at work, and it's active, and sometimes a bit of it splashes into your life, and that's suffering. And she says it, it helps us to, you know, it shakes us out of our slumber, it wakes us up, whatever. But then they were thinking, well, what's a splash over of heaven? If, that's, if suffering is a splash over hell, what's a splash over of heaven? And they're thinking, is it when times are good, when it's easy and breezy and everyone's happy and whole and all is going well in the world? And they concluded from their experience, well, no, that's not the splash over of heaven. She says, the splash over of heaven is when you find Jesus in your splash over of hell. Oh, man. She said, to find Jesus in your hell is ecstasy beyond compare. God may remove your suffering, and that will be great cause for praise. But if not, he will use it. He will use anything and everything that stands in the way of his fellowship with you. So let God mold you and make you. Let him transform you from glory to glory. That's the deeper healing. So, tangent concluded. What's the deeper healing? What's the deeper healing? What's the saving truth revealed about Jesus, the Messiah sent from God? Well, the the deeper truth, the deeper healing is that he hasn't come to merely confront and defeat physical ailments. That's how he got how he generated a crowd, right? That's how he amassed such a following. He was healing people. He was welcoming people. All the things we've said are true. And I'm not saying people were wrong to come to him for that reason. I would do the same thing if I lived in that day and I was as desperate as these people were. And everything else, you know, the woman with the bleed, for all these years, for 12 years, no one could fix this. She was an outcast. She was miserable. A woman at the end of her rope. I would reach out to touch his robe too. That's why he amassed the following. And that's why there's a lot of people in churches today. They're there for him to do that kind of thing in their life. But the deeper healing, the deeper truth, the thing that Luke wants us to see is that he hasn't just come to confront and defeat physical things. He has come to confront and to defeat the very power of evil itself. The son is not just ill, friends. He's assaulted. It says there in verse 42, that the demon knocked him to the ground. That's a verb in the Greek that describes like a boxer or a wrestler that smashes their opponents and crushes them on the ground. Hurled down with contempt. That's what this boy was was experiencing. He was facing a foe that he was powerless against. Jesus didn't come to just make him feel good. And sadly, too many people are coming to him and coming to church for that reason alone. Too many churches are catering just to the felt needs or to the superficial things, or in some cases, they're motivated purely from worldly values altogether. But Jesus came for something deeper. Jesus came to defeat our greatest enemies. Which, by the way, as he defeats the greatest enemies, sometimes that can hurt I find it equally fascinating and unsettling to see how violent and painful the demon's influence was on this kid 
even after faith is exercised and he's presented to Jesus. Is that fascinating or interest you at all? Does that make you uncomfortable at all? Because in our minds, the boy is presented, faith is exercised, he's healed. But no. Faith is exercised, the boy is presented, then the demon does his worst work. Then he crushes him, pulverizes him, grinds him into the ground. And that tells me that sometimes the presence of God in your life results in pain and anguish even before the healing is complete, the work is complete. There might be a season. There might be a season of discomfort as he works to root out the true source of evil and pain and suffering in your life. And there's some of you here this morning who are going through very painful situations in your life. And I know because I'm the same way. Those situations are uncomfortable and they're causing you to doubt either the goodness or the power of God. Because if God is all good, he wouldn't let this happen. If God is all powerful, he wouldn't let this happen. So how is it I have faith in him, I've come to him, I've prayed about this, not just once or twice, for days, weeks, months, years, and yet the problem persists. Where is God? Well, this story is a promise to you that those who persevere in faith, and that's a big difference from those who well, maybe occasionally have faith or once upon a time had faith. Those who persevere in faith, they will discover, just like the boy and his father did, that Jesus was good and in complete control, in complete control all along. Even at, its, even at the worst point, Jesus was still good. Jesus was still in control. And with Jesus, evil never has the final word. Ever. Not in his life and not in your life. But do you know what else doesn't get the final word? Unbelief. Right, we, 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 we note that Jesus is exasperated, he's irritated, but that doesn't mean he has turned them away forever. <laughs> He's more patient than we give him credit for. And I hope that comforts you like it does me. You know, back in chapter 5, verse 20, when we were talking about the paralytic who was lowered down through the roof, in that story, Jesus works in one person's life because of the faith of others. That's what Luke says there in um, verse 20, I believe, in chapter 5. He says, Jesus saw their faith and then said to him, your sins are forgiven. It's fascinating. I, I know that can open up a whole bunch of interesting conversations and debates, and that's not, this isn't time for that. But that happened there. But look what happens here. It's kind of like the inverse, or not quite inverse or opposite, but something entirely, it's entirely different. It's, it's the other end of the spectrum. So here is Jesus works in one person's life because of the faith of others, but then in this passage, Jesus works in one person's life despite the unbelief of others, namely the disciples. And that's a comfort to my heart, by the way, as a pastor and a father. I never feel like I pray enough for my family or for you. I feel like I never am doing enough for those, you know, entrusted 
to my care for whatever that even means, whatever I'm supposed to be for you. I, I never feel like I'm doing enough or, or offering enough. And, but this story, at least for my heart this week, reminded me that, well, I'm your pastor. I'm not your savior, right? That, that's, you don't ultimately need me. You need him. You need him. I'm a finite, broken, imperfect creature just the same as you, which means no matter my best efforts, there may come a time in your life when I come up short and don't deliver what what I should for you. I might even let you down. I might even hurt you. I wouldn't be surprised if there were some of you in here today who have secretly been hurt by me and I didn't even know it. And you, because you're so kind, would never tell me, but you bear this hurt because I wasn't there for you or I didn't say the thing or maybe I said something that hurt you. I don't know. Sometimes people tell me. (laughs) Trust me, people will tell me. But not always. I think there are people who used to sit in these chairs and no longer sit here anymore because of something I said or did. Because I'm not, I'm never going to get it right all the time. I'm always prone and capable of coming up short and, and letting you down. But you know what? God never will. God never will. Even if no one else remembers to care for you or believe for you or meet your needs or show you compassion and concern, God always will. And we know this ultimately because of what we see on the cross. We know this because of what we see on the cross. You know, in this story, This father presents his only son to receive healing. But on the cross, God the Father presents his only son to offer healing. This father implores Jesus to look at his only son. But on the cross, the heavenly father turns his face away from his only son. This father begs for his only son to live. But God's will was for his only son to die. Even for the most exasperating of people like me and you. How determined is God to defeat the evil that assaults you in this world, both around you and within you? Well, Jesus has the answer. This much. This much. God is this determined to root out and conquer and defeat the deeper enemy at work in your life. He's that determined. What more does he have to reveal? What more does he have to prove? What is preventing us from fully embracing and believing in who he really is and in the fullness of what he has come to do? What remains? With this, I'll conclude. I know I've gone long. I apologize. But in 2 Peter, we're going we're to let Peter have the final word here because <laughs> we kind of threw him under the bus this morning. Poor Peter. I can't wait to meet him one day. Won't that be fun? Hey, Peter, remember that time on the Mount of Transfiguration when you stuck your foot in your mouth? I can relate to that. I've done it a time or two myself. Peter gets the final word in his second epistle in chapter 1, verse 16. There, he describes what he witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration that day. And the word he uses is the same word that Luke uses. It is the 
majesty of God. It's the same thing we're told in verse 43 that the people saw when Jesus healed that boy. Isn't that interesting? God's purposes are not always meant to do the things we want him to do when we want him to do it. His purpose is to make himself known through the person and work of his son. So whether on the mountain high or in the valley low, Jesus is the embodiment of the majestic display of God's power. Yes, power to heal illness and relieve suffering, but even more so, the power to overturn the very spiritual strongholds of hell itself. So I invite you, like the people there in, in the passage here, we read the first half of verse 43. I'm going to read the, sec- the first part of the second half. All gripped the people as they saw the majestic display of God's power. Everyone marveled at everything he did. I invite you to be in awe of Jesus, to marvel at what he does, and to believe in him today. Will you do that? Let us pray. Lord, I thank you that in Christ you have made yourself known. Not exhaustively. We would never reduce you to to something we can contain or control and, and manipulate no, you, you have made yourself knowable in a saving way. In this saving revelation, the very person of your Son and the power of your Spirit is offered to us freely. Not to those who have got it all together or have done the right things or atoned for their own mistakes but for sinners like me. And the only condition is repentance and faith. Lord, help us to do that today, to repent of our small view of you, to repent of our preconceived notions, our idolatrous caricatures of what God is and what God should do. Lord, we repent of that today. Help us to embrace what you have said about yourself, help us to listen to you and to receive you and to abide in and obey what we have received. And Lord, I believe that in the midst of a people like that, we will all be gripped with awe. We will marvel at the things you continue to do in us, among us, and through us. Lord, do it right now in the lives of our Brazil team on the other side of a different, a different hemisphere. May your majestic power be on display even in them as they are the hands and feet of God. We thank you, Lord, for the promises contained in these passages. May we embrace them and build our lives upon them for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.